0: This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. So the only problem with introductions is it sets me up for failure. Um, So hopefully this will be fun and interesting. I'm also the last thing I think between you guys and food and more caffeine. So um, hopefully we'll keep you awake and make it so that you're not going to... Uh, fall asleep during this so what I try to do is bring some things that are new and interesting and kind of um, academically interesting but also things that will be really relevant to your practice Uh, and like we were asked to do uh, there are some ARS questions in the beginning and what we'll do is uh, ask you the ARS questions and then I'll give you all the answers and then you'll plug back in the answers it's gonna be amazing all right um, so I have no relevant conflicts of interest for this talk. Um, so basically, this is a ten-year-old comes to your office for a fourth episode of guttate psoriasis. You can actually see in his um, on his back, he's got all the post-inflammatory changes from having had it before. He responds to cephalexin; his psoriasis gets better. I call that winning like the strep psoriasis lottery. Um, he's been told he has large tonsils and he's a candidate for removal. What do you tell him? So, a he should stay on cephalexin for life. B he should start using sticinumab C, his strep cultures are probably wrong, or D, he need, should consider a tonsillectomy. Do I advance this now? Cool. Awesome. I'm going to teach you information you already know. All right, it's cool. Um, so, this one's slightly more challenging. Uh, this is a uh, congenital lesion of one of my patients from uh, 10 years ago, um, and the question is, is it a hemangioma with arrested growth, a reticulated port wine stain, or cutis marmorata telangiectatica congenita? All right, cool, all right. Um, question number three, what is the most common feature of melanoma in children under 10? Fortunately, melanoma in children under 10 is very rare, but what do they look, normally look like? So a dark black color, flat lesions, nail bed location, or being a melanotic. That's cool. I think we have every generation. Maybe the next one will be um, something from the 2000s. Um, So which of the following is a cause of Giannotti cross type hypersensitivity, topical neomycin, nickel sulfate, molluscum, or verruca vulgaris? Nope. All right, cool. All right, so um, I'm going to teach you more than just those four things, because uh, some of you know a bunch of those things already. Uh, and we'll go through and we'll talk about a bunch of new things in Pete's term. So um, 10-year-old comes to your office, and what do you tell them? Um, having guttate psoriasis is highly associated with strep infections in, in children. In adults, it's much less likely um, to have a strong association. Often, they've had their disease for a lot longer. It's much more trenched, entrenched in their genetics. Um, But in children, it certainly is highly associated with strep infections. And it always seemed uh, um, uh, kind of too barbaric to go and tell people to get a surgery done for their skin disease. But now you know a lot more about psoriasis, and psoriasis is highly associated with cardiovascular disease in adults. Um, It's really a multi-system disease, you have this risk of uh, psoriatic arthritis as well. Um, And because strep is so highly associated with guttate psoriasis, um, it's very reasonable in people who have guttate psoriasis and have recurrences and have proven strep infections to consider tonsillectomy. I do not uh, recommend all of my patients with psoriasis get tonsillectomies, that would be ridiculous. Um, But if you have the patient who continues to get uh, psoriasis over and over, um, and every single time they have a strep infection, you culture them. They are strep carriers. Uh, They have huge tonsils. It's extremely reasonable. So this is one of the studies. There was actually a huge meta-analysis of all the different kind of case series. One of them was actually a randomized control trial. It's amazing as a parent to kind of allow your child to be enrolled in a a randomized control trial that involves surgery. Um, But essentially what they showed was that in the 15 people who got surgery in this trial, uh, there was a 30 to 90% PASI reduction. That's actually very similar to what some of the systemic drugs do. And if you have a choice as a parent of giving your child methotrexate for the next like X million number years, um, or potentially removing their tonsils once and having their psoriasis get distinctly better, it's a very reasonable thing to do. You often will have to educate your friends in other specialties. So if you send someone to ENT and say, hey, I've got a patient with psoriasis, and we're thinking about taking out their tonsils, they may think you're crazy. Um, but if you send them with a little letter and saying, hey, this is a thing, and they can look it up in their literature, it actually is a little bit more widely known now. Um, So, uh, in terms of um, other safety things and what else is new in atopic topic in um, uh, in, uh, pediatric dermatology, uh, plaque psoriasis and treating with Etanercept. We've been using Etanercept off-label for a really long time. uh, And the question is, what is um, uh, the data for it in terms of uh, side effects? So, this is 264 weeks of follow-up, but only 69 patients. It's probably too small of a sample size to actually find the real risk of lymphoma and other types of um, uh, bad infections in children with plaque psoriasis but fortunately they did not show any increased risk over what you would expect in the normal population uh, and essentially what they're showing you is that long-term use of etanercept in our children uh, is now a reasonable thing to do and is actually now FDA approved in younger children which is great so having anything FDA approved in, in people under 18 is very hard and the FDA is actually doing a much better job of trying to enroll children in trials so you have something to offer them. All right, the gut microbiome. So it turns out that what we do in 2017 to deliver babies is probably not good for them. Um, So if you think about 2,000 years ago, you'd like deliver a baby at home, and then someone cuts the cord with like a rock or something, and then they like bathe in the dirt, and then they give them back to the mom, and you're like, here, here's your baby. And yes, occasionally that does not work out well, um, but probably what we do in 2017 may actually not work out well either. Uh, So the gut microbiome is uh, the bacteria that you are naturally colonized with, that is supposed to be there, uh, that's really helping your health. And what they found is that if you get colonized with the hospital, you're much more likely to have atopic diseases than if you get colonized with mom's vaginal flora. So basically, if you have a normal vaginal delivery, the baby on the way out is getting coated with vaginal flora and all the good bacteria that mom is carrying. If you have a C-section, like I did. uh, Well, I didn't have a C-section, but my (laughs) wife had. I was there. so. Two C sections later, uh, basically they deliver the baby and they're like, here you go. And then basically a nurse and a doctor and uh, you know the whole team kind of takes over and they colonize them with the hospital. Uh, and getting colonized with the hospital is probably not the best thing. And what they've shown in multiple meta-analyses is that if you get colonized with hospital bacteria, which is what happens after C sections, you have an increased rate of atopic diseases, including asthma, seasonal allergies. There are also cool studies to show that if you have a dishwasher at home, you're much more likely to have children with food allergies. So um, FYI, dishwashers are really good cool at cleaning dishes, and you are not. Um, and so when we clean dishes on our own with our hands, there's lots of little food particles and stuff that's left over. And kids then get exposed to that. And it turns out early exposure to foods actually decreases their risk of becoming allergic to foods. And that's been a huge change within the allergy population. Um, so, uh, there are now YouTube videos, which I highly recommend you not search while you're in a public place, uh, which show exactly how to take mom's vaginal flora after you've had a C-section and smear it all over your baby uh, in order to try to prevent them from getting atopic diseases. Uh, and yes, that's a thing. Oh, we're in California. So cool. I'm, um, it's especially a thing in California. Um, and San Francisco so um, they actually haven't shown that this has been effective yet but it is a very reasonable idea just completely anecdotally I have one child who was in labor for like 36 hours which isn't a thing either but the OB was tired um, and uh, got like halfway out and then they delivered her by c-section so she got all sorts of mom's vaginal flora she is not atopic my other one is horribly atopic because she had a uh, c-section but um, again anecdotal small data but I think this probably will be bor- borne out So Bamba, how many people have heard of Bamba? Yay. So Bamba is now like one of the highest selling things on Amazon because of the story I'm about to tell you. So it turns out there was an Israeli or an allergist who was giving a talk in Israel, and he was giving a talk about how awful peanut allergy was, and how much peanut allergy there is in the population, and it's becoming so rampant. Um, And there were a bunch of Israeli allergists who were like, "Yeah, no, that's not a thing in Israel." And they were like, "Yes, it is." And you're like, "No, it isn't." They're like, "Yes, it is." And that went on for a little while. And after a while, they were like, "Well, let's look." And it turns out that Israel basically does not have peanut allergy. And then the question is why? And the why is because Bamba is the teething um, snack for babies in Israel and it is coated in peanut oil. Um, And what this set off is the idea that is exactly wrong. Um, You'll learn in medicine that basically half the stuff you learn is wrong, you just don't know which half. Um, And the half that was wrong apparently here is that if you get peanuts, um, uh, if you delay someone's peanut exposure, which was the actual recommendation from the American Academy of Pediatrics Um, And the American Academy of Allergy and Immunology, you actually increase people's risk of of peanut allergy. Now you have to be a little careful with this because you can't tell parents to give a child a peanut. So give a six month old a peanut and they're going to die of asphyxiation. Um, Giving a six month old peanut oil or something that has a little bit of peanut on it like Bamba is, is much more reasonable. So they did this in a trial, they took 640 high risk infants. So sibling had peanut allergy, bad asthma, bad atopic dermatitis, something that put them at high risk for food allergy, and skin tested them. And even the children who had a small positive skin test still got enrolled to actually get exposed to peanut. Um, And what they did was they randomized them to either giving peanut or not giving peanuts in the first four to 11 months. And what they found is that if you avoided peanut, you were 17%, 17% of them had uh, peanut allergy. And if you did not avoid peanut and got peanut um, uh, early on, only 3% of them got peanut allergy. If you, so the new recommendation, which actually is hot off the presses, is basically if you have a child with severe atopic dermatitis, and this is where it kind of gets onto us, if you have a child with severe atopic dermatitis who is an infant, they are supposed to be referred to allergy to have them do skin prick testing. If the skin prick testing is negative or low, then they're given peanut at the allergist's discretion. For everyone else who's got like mild atopic dermatitis, they say basically to introduce peanut um, uh, around the age of six or nine months. And the actual recommendation is um, well published in the American Academy of Pediatrics. So this is cool. Um, this is the recommendation. If you have severe uh, atopic derm or egg allergy, get skin tested. And basically, everyone else should essentially be fed peanut in order to um, uh, see. And again, do not give them actual peanuts. If this was an ENT talk, someone would have like shot me already. Um, All right, Uh, cool. So this is the reason not to tell children that they're just allergic to every food underneath of the sun. So we have children who are told that they're like milk, peanut, egg, every protein allergic and they're basically given uh, nutritional or um, uh, elemental formula to drink. Anyone ever smelled elemental formula? Cool, has anyone ever smelled vomit? So, if you eat food, right, and your body breaks it up into a bunch of like little things that are um, basic elements that you then absorb, that's called vomit. And if you puke it back up and you put it in a can, that's called elemental formula. Um, And the problem with that is it does actually taste awful. Uh, And if you take a nine-month-old or a 12-month-old who has severe eczema already and you um, have them drink elemental formula, which occasionally kids truly are allergic to all these foods and they have to be on elemental formula, um, they sometimes can become nutritionally deficient because they won't actually drink it. And what parents go out and get is they get something that's like a rice formula um, or an alternative type of of milk that's not really nutritionally uh, replete for them. So this is a child who actually has kwashiorkor. uh, And kwashiorkor should not happen in the United States. There should be access to food. And this is an extraordinarily highly functioning family who basically both um, uh, have graduate level degrees and said, our child's allergic to everything under the sun. We're basically going to eliminate it all. And what they fed them was rice dream. So, Rice Stream tastes amazing, it is basically sugar water, uh, and it does not have enough zinc in it, and it does not have enough protein in it, uh, and these kids can get nutritionally deficient. Uh, actually, my, uh, one of my colleagues, Albert Yan, got the label changed on Rice Stream to now actually um, basically say in red that it is not baby formula. This is the worst case scenario I've seen of someone. Uh, This is a four-year-old who weighed about 15 or 18 pounds when she got admitted. Uh, She has horrendous uh, scaling in her skin, had infection, because it turns out you need proteins in order to make all of your immunoglobulins. So bottom line is, if you have a child who's been told that they're allergic to everything under the sun, please get an allergist involved. Please do not shotgun RAS testing where you check for like 30 different foods when someone has atopic dermatitis because there are a lot of false positives to those tests and parents will take everything that comes back as an answer as gold uh, and it really should be guided by an allergist who knows what they're doing. Um, So uh, cool. On a completely random note because this is a what's new talk, uh, this child has a congenital lesion on the left side of the head. It's kind of orangey, there's no hair inside of it, so this is a nevus sebaceous. But it's a really big nevus sebaceous. uh, And we used to not really know what causes these. Um, It turns out that these are HRAS mutations. The exact uh, type of mutation is like great for boards facts, but not really interesting in clinical practice. But what is interesting in clinical practice is if you have something that was a very late defect in development, it affects a very small bit of skin. If you have something that's a very early defect development, it affects a much larger part of skin. And if it's a gene that actually affects other tissues, you're more likely to have other tissues affected. So if you look at this slide, basically what you can see is if you have the first sperm and egg that are affected, then every cell in that person's body is going to have the gene defect. And often, that's fatal. But if you're like a million cells in and one cell goes bad, then you're going to have one little piece of skin that's affected, and probably the rest of the body's not. So the bottom line is early mutations cause more skin disease. And if you have more skin disease, you're more likely to have one of those cells have led to the heart or the lungs or the brain or something else that was important on the inside of the body. um, And they're more likely to have kind of systemic associations. So if you go back to our kid, 99.9% of the nevus sebaceous out there have no associations whatsoever. When do you know when to worry about someone? It probably is the kids who have the bigger lesions, so they're more likely to have things like an ocular dermoid or brain findings or something like that. So as you see these genetic defects in the skin or broad swaths of pigment change or um, large birthmarks, the earlier it happens, the bigger it is, uh, and the more likely it is to affect other tissues. Um, This is another example of a uh, nevus spilus on the body as well as a large nevus sebaceous on the head. This child or this person is at much higher risk of seizures and eye findings and other findings associated with nevus sebaceous syndrome because it happened much earlier. All right, now we get back to this one. Um, By the way, the answer is about to happen. So uh, what is this congenital lesion? So you look at it, and it looks kind of like red and patchy, almost looks like a livido pattern, if you've seen people with like antiphospholibid antibody syndrome. Um, And so these were often misdiagnosed as cutis marmorata telangiectatica congenita. um, But this is actually a capillary malformation. The other term for capillary malformation is port wine stain. It's a cool generational gap. If you try to explain people what um, port wine stains are based on Mikhail Gorbachev, they don't know who that is Um, and if you try to explain who Mikhail Gorbachev is they don't know that the USSR was and then you just end up in this whole logic train that does not work. So anyway these are red purple patches that sometimes show up on Saturday Night Live Um, and if they are reticulated they look like uh, cutis marmorata telangiectatica congenitor or CMTC Why does it matter? It matters because reticulated port wine stains are highly associated with genetic diseases, and um, CMTC is almost never associated with genetic diseases. So why do you care? You're like, I'm never going to see this in my career. It is very possible that you are actually the only person who's going to see the skin finding and have any idea what's going on, because the pediatrician will not know what this is, most likely. And then you are the gateway to say, hey, you need genetic testing or hey, you need to see a geneticist in order to help figure out what else is going on. So let me show you why that is. If you look at the the one on your left, this is your reticulated port wine stain, which is a little bit more uniform. It's a little bit more patchy pink, purple. This one is truly just looks like you have extremely cold, mottled skin, but it doesn't go away. This is CMTC. This is a reticulated port wine stain. Reticulated port wine stains are much more likely to be associated with genetic changes. This is my child. So this is the exact same child. So this child is uh, like six months old. This is when she's nine. The hand on the right side is significantly larger than my hand, all right? And I don't have tiny hands. But the um, uh, So basically, she has a hand that is the size of like a size 14 foot. Um, on one side, and the other hand is actually normal. So it's not that the port wine stain necessarily causes overgrowth, it's that the port wine stain is telling you that this child is at risk for overgrowth. What types of port wine stains do you worry about? Most of them are fine. If you have a little port wine stain that's on the cheek or on an arm or a little tiny spot, then that's much less likely to be associated with problem. But if you have a very widespread port wine stain that affects a lot of the body, or excuse me, capillary malformation that uh, um, affects a lot of the body, it probably is an early genetic change. And then again, that's more likely to be associated with other changes inside the body. So, kids who have really wide um, uh, uh, spread capillary malformations or port wine stains, those words are interchangeable, um, uh, probably should be referred to genetics. And we can now actually do biopsies of them and figure out exactly what genetic change they have and help them. This is totally not meant to be memorized, but FYI, there's a a really awesome group out there called the uh, International Society for Vascular Anomalies. They have done your job for you. They basically listed every single type of genetic vascular anomaly known, the gene that's associated with it, you can click on it, it will describe the syndrome for you, and basically you can look at a child and categorize them much more easily than you used to be able to, which is very cool. Um, And memorizing all these genes is useless, but understanding that we are probably the gateway to getting these children into a geneticist, into help, um, is really important. This is another example. This is Clove syndrome, again, the, uh, the details of which are not that important. But this child has very widespread capillary malformations that are kind of subtle and obviously has massive overgrowth and lots else going on. Um, And the interesting thing is, again, I apologize for the pathway, um, but the bottom of this pathway has a target that we have a drug for. So all of these overgrowth syndromes that hopefully at some point you've kind of like read over and then like fell asleep, um, so uh, Clove syndrome, MCAP, Proteus syndrome, Bani-Ann oreilly all these things that are like details in a Derm book, they all actually affect the same pathway. So they look like each other, and then they go through this chemical called mTOR. Um, And the cool thing about mTOR is that there's a medication called rapamycin or serolimus, which is literally an mTOR inhibitor. Uh, And um, mTOR is uh, the end of a growth pathway. So again, why does this matter and why is it cool? You may never use serolimus, but understanding that this exists out there is very interesting. This is a child. Um, I'm not that good with radiology, but I think this is the head and this is the tumor, all right? So head, tumor, I'm giving the head probably like, uh, um, it's about 50% the size of the tumor. You've got this huge lymphatic malformation. This is after they gave them serolimus. This is amazing. Does the child look perfect? No, but can they breathe and can they survive? Yes. So now that we know the genetics of this disease, we actually have a target for it. actually can make people a bunch better. Same thing is true actually for the angiofibromas um, as part of tuber sclerosis. If you put topical serolimus on them, they melt away. So if you have children who have angiofibromas on the face, it's well known that topical serolimus works really well. If you have a child who has a crazy plexiform neurofibroma that's pressing on the spine, causing some awful thing, you can give them oral serolimus. And by you, I don't mean me. Um, I mean an, an oncologist or someone who's qualified to give serolimus can do this but again we are the gateways to kind of helping people understand what disease they have and what the options are because the other specialists may actually not know about these treatments all right, on another completely random topic. By the way, the reason you don't have the pictures in your slides is because sending you out a bunch of pictures of children's genitals is just asking for trouble. <laughs> you be in the airport and someone would be like, searching your phone, because that's what today is like. Um, and then, yeah, you just don't want them finding this picture. Anyway, so this is a four-year-old, um, four weeks of swelling, not getting better with oral antibiotics, topical steroids. And the question is, what does this child have and what can you do about it? So this is one of the presentations of Crohn's disease. Crohn's disease causes these granulomas in your bowel and you get bloody diarrhea, but you can also get granulomas in your skin. It can cause things that look like skin tags and fissures, um, and it can cause really massive edema of the genitals in young children. It is, of course, the most important thing is making sure they don't have a hair tourniquet. If you have a hair tourniquet tied around a penis, this penis has about 24 hours to live, um, and people like to not lose them. Uh, and so it's very important to make sure it's not that. But since this has been going on for a while, it shouldn't be a hair tourniquet. I want to introduce you to the idea of a fecal calprotectin. How many people have heard of this lab? Cool. OK, so it turns out if you poop in a cup, you can get the sed rate of the bowel. All right. So if you get a sed rate, you're looking for how much inflammation you have inside the body. It's a very crude test. If you have stool and you check what's called a fecal calprotectin, you can get the sed rate or the inflammatory marker of the bowel. Um, And this actually is fairly predictive for having inflammatory bowel disease. It's not perfect, but we can't scope people. Does anyone have an endoscopy? No? Did anyone do colonoscopies? Please say no. Um, So we can't scope people, but we can, as a screening test, do something like a fecal calprotectin. And a lot of our diseases actually show up, or a lot of um, inflammatory bowel disease will actually show up in the skin first. So pyoderma gangrenosum, erythema nodosum, cutaneous Crohn's will often show up in the skin first. And if you have something that's a skin finding and you have a simple test to look for inflammatory bowel disease, it's very reasonable to do. That being said, of course, if someone has bowel symptoms and you're not sure, please have them see a GI doctor. Um, But this is a nice screening test to kind of add to a panel if you're checking someone who has pyoderma gangrenosum or another disease that's associated with um, uh, skin findings and Crohn's. All right, so um, this is a case series from uh, Mayo, which basically showed that seven out of eight patients um, who had uh, um, cutaneous Crohn's or skin Crohn's showed up with genital edema as their first Um, uh, sign and they were treated bless you with um, uh, systemic agents which worked really well although you usually had to hit them pretty hard and kind of treat them with the things that would normally treat Crohn's Uh, I follow a couple patients one of them still does not have any bowel Crohn's um, but uh, basically the skin findings are perfect for Crohn's all right, this child drove like four hours to see me. You can actually see the biopsy that's on his tush, and then he was using clebatazole on his butt for the last five years. Um, he actually has striae on the inside parts of his legs. Um, and what had happened is he, he was wearing his underwear and people always looked at the back of his legs and said, oh, you've got eczema on the back of your legs. If you have eczema in a very, particular place and not really anywhere else, and clobetazole is not treating it in a child. We almost never use clobetazole. If it is not treating it in a child, there is something else going on. That is not just eczema. You need to kind of look for something that's kind of causing the rash. So if you step back from this, there's only really one thing that you sit on when you're naked that doesn't touch the center part of your butt. All right, Um, that's a toilet seat. Uh, and it turns out that if you are irritated or allergic to whatever you clean your toilet seats with, you will get toilet seat dermatitis. This has definitely seen you if you have not seen it, all right? This probably I see once a week at this point. Um, and basically, it's children who are often a little bit younger, potty training, dad's peeing all over the toilet seat, mom's freaked out about it, she has all the wipes, and she like wipes the toilet seat each time because, um, God forbid, her daughter sits on dad's pee, which is appropriate. Um, but... Uh, can cause a lot of dermatitis. Um, this is another child drove from really far away. I just had mom step back from the table. I was like, look, it's a toilet seat. She's like, so cool. Um, <laughs> I have nothing against Clorox and Lysol. They kill germs really well, and they're probably fantastic companies, but what is not listed on the back of this wipes? So like the the oven is listed, the mirror's listed, there's a glass table on here, there's not a toilet, okay? Um, So basically, if you're wiping down your whole bathroom with a wipe, it says very specifically on these instructions, never let the stuff from the wipe get onto the skin. There's a reason for that. If you're really good at killing all of the bathroom bacteria, you're probably not that awesome for the skin, all right? Um, And if you wipe down a toilet seat and you leave the residue on there, um, parents get a little OCD about cleaning their toilet seats with wipes, because it's easy to do, and children sit on it over and over, they get an extremely exuberant, irritant reaction. They get very irritated by this. I guarantee you, when you start looking for this, you will find children, especially your eczema kids, or your kids who have a little bit more sensitive skin, will be getting this. It's usually three, four, five-year-olds who, again, are potty training and kind of going to the bathroom all the time and, like, all over the potty uh, when they have it. Parents don't usually get it, but occasionally they will. All right. Pemicrolimus, um, a.k.a. Elidel. Uh, There was a cool study put out from Penn which basically said, Is it safe to use Pimicrolimus? There is a black box warning on this, and the FDA basically said, you have to follow these patients out for a long time and see whether it's safe to use Pimicrolimus. This is 26,000 patient years of people using Pimicrolimus. Obviously not one person, um, but a lot of people collected over a long period of time, and they essentially found the normal baseline population risk Um, of malignancy. So five malignancies is about what you would expect in the normal population of 26,000 patient years, two lymphomas, two leukemias, one osteosarcoma. There wasn't a push in in one direction for like one type of um, cancer. And so there was no statistically significant increase. I think it's very helpful when you're presenting tacrolimus or permicrolimus to a patient, and mom or dad is gonna read that black box warning to have a study saying, these are probably very reasonable medications, even in children. Um, Crisabarol, brand new FDA approved medication for um, atopic dermatitis, Uh, FDA approved down to two years of age. I don't know exactly where this fits into my regimen yet, but if you look at um, atopic dermatitis and you have uh, inflamed skin, there is a molecule called PDE4. This is also the target of a premolast, as you've seen for psoriasis. And the topical agent kind of turns down this PDE4 and therefore turns down inflammation. Um, I think probably it's gonna fit in my practice the same way that microlimus or tacrolimus fit in, which is kind of to use it for more maintenance or use it when I need a steroid sparing agent. Um, It is fairly expensive, but often insurances, because it is actually FDA approved, kind of have to give it to you because there aren't that many FDA approved options as long as you fill out a PA. Um, I have had a fair number of patients have burning at the application site, um, but we've had a few patients who really feel like this has made a huge difference for them. Uh, This is the kind of clinical trial from the JAD article, which basically shows whatever they used in the vehicle is amazing. So this vehicle is really cool. They should sell the vehicle. Um, So basically, uh, the vehicle worked really well, and the the Crisabarol worked even better than that. So this is 58% of people having um, a really uh, significant um, increase or decrease in their atopic dermatitis. Um, and in pruritus, I'm sorry, this is the pruritus scale, but basically decreased itching. And I actually have heard that from patients that they seem to have decreased itching uh, with the medication. So it's very nice to have something that's FDA approved that's new. There has not been an FDA approved medication since like um, 15 years in atopic dermatitis, and it's nice that they went all the way down to two years of age, which is great. Um, Systemic drugs for atopic dermatitis. You may not think of doing this in children, but if you have someone with really bad eczema, they haven't slept probably their entire life. Their parents probably have not slept since they were born. Um, and they get itchy, scratchy, they don't do as well in school, they have a higher rate of depression, um, and they have a higher rate of infection. So I'm not telling you to give all of your eczema patients systemic medications, but definitely consider it in children who are really, really desperate. And so what did we have as kind of um, therapeutic armamentarium? Uh, we use a fair amount of methotrexate in my practice because it's got a lot of data in children um, and seems to be fairly safe. Of course, that's a drug that you don't wanna give unless you have to. Azathioprine and cyclosporin also have a fair amount of uh, kind of anecdotal pediatric derma- uh, um, data. These are all off-label. But dupilumab is now on-label for atopic dermatitis. I'm sure someone's going to give you more data about this. Um, but basically what dupilumab does is it blocks IL-4 and 13, which are the cytokines um, or interleukins that are essentially involved in the inflammation cascade of atopic dermatitis. And what they found was a dose-dependent response, which turned down eczema. Um, uh, Dupilumab is unfortunately not approved for children yet, although there are multiple trials uh, ongoing in children 12 to 18, uh, and um, hopefully we'll have this for kids soon. It is an injection, but again, in kids with bad atopic dermatitis, it's totally reasonable. All right, I swear, I, I've, um, I've never gotten through a talk and at the end not had someone say, hey, what about molluscum? Um, you can talk about like anything on the planet. I could talk about vascular malformations on the face for like two hours and someone would be asking me like, what about molluscum? <laughs> it's because it tortures all of us and I totally get it, all right? So I wanted to give you a couple of things about molluscum. This is now two years old or a couple years old. Um, Someone published the idea of the boat sign, which is the quote unquote beginning of the end. This is super helpful for parents. The when the parents get to you is often when the spots are red and inflamed and look terrible and it's quote unquote infected. Of course it's infected, it's a virus. It's almost never infected actually with extra bacteria, but it is infected with molluscum. And what you can tell parents is, as soon as it's gotten really red and angry, those spots are on their way out. You don't need to torture the children by freezing a red molluscum, because the body's already doing its job for you, um, and it's on its way out. Uh, This is newer, which I thought was very interesting. I've actually had multiple fellows be um, fooled by this. So you look in this person's tush, and um, this uh, looks like it should be condyloma. So if you have a three- or four-year-old and they have condyloma on their tush, that's a huge deal because you're worried that they actually have child abuse. You should not be getting condyloma um, from kind of uh, um, vaginal or delivery that shows up in a child who's like three, four, five, six years old. You worry about those um, children actually being abused. So differentiating molluscum, molluscum is almost never from child abuse because molluscum, kids get a little on their fingers or a little virus kind of here and there, and then they wipe themselves, and molluscum spreads like wildfire. So usually in the perineum, molluscum is not a sign of abuse. Occasionally, of course, it can be. Um, but condyloma is a much more bigger, big deal. So verruca or true warts are a much bigger deal. This looks like condyloma. You have a bunch of kind of like um, papules all together kind of coalescing into this linear plaque, but all it is is molluscum all stacked on top of each other. You can see the little white dots of molluscum that are there. Those are all the kind of tops of the molluscum bodies, and it's really helpful if you have some regular old molluscum right next to it. So just recognize this as a way that molluscum presents. It presents as this line of kind of coalesced molluscum, and again, um, molluscum fortunately typically is not a sign of abuse typically. Vitiligo and skin cancer. We do um, phototherapy for vitiligo all the time, and we do it in children, too, because uh, um, you can get really nice results when you catch it very early. This was a very cool study to show that you would expect in people with vitiligo who don't actually have a whole lot of skin color. Um, of course, because they have vitiligo, um, that if you shined a light on them over and over, you might increase their risk of skin cancer. And you probably do a little bit, but it's not nearly as high as you would think. And what they found is that people with vitiligo, whether they'd been treated with light therapy or not, the actual areas of vitiligo had a much smaller rate of skin cancer than their regular skin. And in retrospect, it kind of makes sense. If you have the immune system already tracking into the skin and trying to kill the melanocytes at all times, trying to form a melanoma in there is actually fairly difficult because the immune system is killing all the melanocytes that are in the area. Um, So it's good to know that even with phototherapy, we're probably not dramatically increasing the risk of skin cancer. Um, Isotretinoin depression, I love isotretinoin. I give it um, very commonly to children uh, and um, feel like it works really well and it's life-changing just before I present this data. But if you look in the psych literature, it's actually very interesting they very specifically point out if you have bipolar disease and you give someone um, isotretinoin, you can really distinctly make their bipolar disease worse. And I think that's actually true in my practice where if I have someone who has underlying depression, underlying anxiety, underlying OCD to begin with, I can worsen that. Um, And what I thought was cool is actually the mechanism for that happening makes sense. So um, I don't have a frontal lobe because that's the way I was born, Um, but most people have a frontal lobe that stops them from saying random things all the time and embarrassing themselves. Um, But uh, if you give someone Accutane, it basically makes that frontal lobe even more disadvantaged, um, and whatever thoughts they have on the inside get out more easily. So does it cause people to have depression? Probably not, Um, but can it take someone who's just barely kind of compensating for their depression or their anxiety and tip them over the edge, maybe, and that's what the data seems to support. This is based on small studies. Um, I'm sure there are people who will argue that isotretinoin has nothing to do with mood, um, but I think it probably has a little bit to do with mood if you have an underlying mood disorder. How about isotrotinone and inflammatory bowel disease? There was a huge lawsuit, many millions of dollars, that was settled about eight or 10 years ago. And so there have been multiple studies that have now looked at inflammatory bowel disease. And what they actually find, um, I only sort of know how to read these graphs, but it turns out that if you're to the left of this line, It means that you actually not only don't cause the disease, but you may actually protect against the disease. And if you look, the majority of these studies actually show that if you give someone isotretinoin, they're less likely to get inflammatory bowel disease than if you don't give them isotretinoin. Please don't give this as a preventative for inflammatory bowel disease. That's not a thing. Um, But it's really nice to be able to explain to families not only is there probably not a real cause of inflammatory bowel disease with um, isotretinoin, um, but the studies actually show the opposite. Uh, and, um, And essentially the way I use this is, if you don't have any symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease, you're probably not going to get it. If you do actually have Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, those patients are at higher risk of getting really bad acne. They're at higher risk of getting cystic acne, hidradenitis, et cetera. Diseases where you might consider using isotretinoin. And then you talk to the GI doctor, you see how stable they are, and you see how it goes. Um, I've given a bunch of patients with uh, Crohn's disease isotretinoin, and it seems to work out well, at least in the patients I've treated. All right, this is the answer to the next question. Cool. Um, do you worry about this spot? I have to say, if you flash this spot at me and you like, sent me a text and I was doing something else and I was just like, quickly responding, I'd be like, okay, kid, red, bump, bleeding, it's a pyogenic granuloma, okay? So when your mind thinks of pyogenic granulomas in children, never take it off and put it in the trash. Okay? The two worst melanomas I've ever seen in children were both um, from dermatology offices where someone took it off, they scraped it off, they said, we're going to save you the path fee, maybe they don't have insurance, maybe they get a high copay, and we're just going to not send it because it's a pyogenic granuloma. Anything you take off the skin, please send to a pathologist. None of us can be right all the time. And you want the pathologist to tell you what it is. Um, And the way that melanomas show up in children, especially pre-adolescence, is amelanotic bleeding red spots. Okay, And they do not look like your typical mole. The parents will often come in and say, this thing's just weird. And what happens a lot of times is they'll get frozen with liquid nitrogen because you think it's a wart or you think it's molluscum all reasonable, it's very easy to get fooled by these, Um, but if it just looks weird and it just doesn't feel right, it's always reasonable to kind of um, shave this off and make absolutely sure of what it is. Melanoma, fortunately, in children is extremely uncommon. Again, we're in California, so you guys probably have a little higher rate. Um, This data actually came from UCSF. Um, They had 70 total melanomas or things that could be categorized as melanomas, but they weren't sure because they were children. Um, And what they showed was in the kids who are in teenage groups, the melanomas look just like the melanomas you see in adults. They're black, brown, multiple-colored, growing, kind of um, flat patches or papules. Um, But in children who are under 10, most of them were amelanotic, most of them were pink, um, and especially um, under 11. And the kids who died from their melanoma were much more likely to be amelanotic because it's just not recognized. So in my practice in the last like 15 years, I've seen probably four or five melanomas that I've diagnosed um, a priori. But the, uh, and so the rate is extremely low. But you, if you take all of us together, we're biopsying tens of thousands of things a year. You may run into a pediatric melanoma. It does not look like adult melanoma. So even in this child, this is an amazing example to me, you take someone who has type 4 skin, type 5 skin, has a giant congenital nevus that is extremely dark, and they still made an amelanotic melanoma. Like, everything else on this child's skin is pigmented, and they still made an amelanotic melanoma. Um, Just be aware of the bleeding red papule in a child. All right, this is a pyogenic granuloma. This is an amelanotic melanoma. They look just like each other. It is totally reasonable. Once a year, the pathologist calls me and goes, hey, you know that PG you scraped off? That was an atypical Spitz tumor or some really weird melanocytic lesion. And I say, thank you for processing it. I appreciate that. Now I'll deal with it. All right, Um, so bottom line with moles, amelanotic more worrisome, beware of pyogenic granulomas. A couple of things, um, I I like to put this in the category of kids do stupid things. Um, So uh, kids do stupid things, you'd be surprised. It's amazing, actually. So it turns out um, uh, this is, uh, um, you can do this like sitting in a McDonald's. Uh, If you take your skin, and you put salt on it and then, I'm sorry I'm telling you how to do this, I apologize. (laughs) Please don't do this. Um, You put salt on it and you take an ice cube and you rub it on it. Um, The ice cube will actually stay really cold and you'll get frostbite really quickly in an area and you can cause terrible thermal burns really quickly. The salt and ice challenge involves people pouring salt in their hands and grabbing an ice cube and seeing how long they can hold it before they blister and burn their entire palm off. Again, kids do stupid things. Um, and they will dare each other um, we've had kids admitted to the hospital they'll have like their whole arm is blistered and people will be worried about infection um, they'll think it looks really terrible I had a patient who was told he had pseudoporphyria on one random inner arm and he's right-handed I was like that is not a thing um, so uh, and he would um yeah anyway uh, so uh, the bottom line is kids can do this to themselves it's a great way of getting out of school it's a great way of getting out of um, uh, activities that you don't want to do and what is the Child, say when they come to the ER, you've got like a 16 year old there, they've like blistered their entire arm, and you're like, What happened? And they're like, I don't know. And the parents are like, Look, it's terrible. It's happening right in front of your eyes. And you're like, Did you do anything in your arm? They're like, No, I did not do anything. And you're like, <laughs> Thanks, man. You're helping me. So Salt and Ice Challenge, um, the way to recognize it is you get geometric, bizarre, blistering shapes often on the other side of the dominant hand, um, or kids will do it to each other. The newest one I've seen is actually really funny. Sorry, that's not fair. Um, It's not funny to parents. Um, But it turns out if you take ink and you actually dump it out of a pen on your arm and then you stab it a bunch of times with a needle, that's a tattoo. And that's permanent. Um, So if you go to a party and you, like, um, put, like, a curse word in your arm because you think it's really cool, you're now a part of a gang and you can't get off. Um, So uh, people will self-tattoo themselves because it's free and fun and stupid. Um, This is uh, paraphenylenediamine. Tattoos that you get at like the Jersey Shore uh, will often be a little bit less expensive than like a regular henna tattoo. I have nothing against Jersey, sorry. Um, But black henna is an extremely um, potent allergen. It is one of the most potent allergens that exists. Regular henna, I've been to a bunch of mandy parties. You get um, regular brown henna at like at an Indian ceremony. Awesome, looks really cool, washes off, doesn't cause allergic contact dermatitis. But like the $2 henna tattoo that you get um, on the boardwalk can have diamine in it, which is an extremely potent allergen. You have to be really careful with it. Um, and there's actually one child even who drank paraphenylenediamine and died from the amount of um, allergy they got. Uh, cool. So this is fun. Um, the the um, Kardashians are cool, and they have big lips. Um, and so it turns out that that's what people want. You guys do a lot of cosmetics. I don't do any cosmetics. It turns out like everybody wants big lips. Um, but And you can do that for free as a child if you just suck your lips into a bottle. Um, the problem is if you do it enough, you can create enough lymphedema that it actually stays this way. Um, this child is That's her lips. You know when your mom told you, like, don't keep doing that. It'll stay that way? That's actually true. Um, So this is the Kylie Jenner challenge. Google it, I swear, it's really bizarre. Um, This is huffing where people take uh, um, either uh, um, paint solvents or sprays and essentially um, huff them in. Some of them are extremely cold and can kind of burn the skin. Some of them can give you uh, um, irritant burns and they just again cause this weird blistering. It's very reasonable to think that this is some awful infection, but in a teenager you have to worry about an outside job also. All right, last case, seven-year-old comes in, has a rash all over his tush, all over his legs, all over his arms, and none on the body. You're like, what is the deal? Why didn't you put any rash on your body? That's so weird. Um, That is Giannotti-Crosti syndrome, okay? So Giannotti-Crosti disease is these fine red papules. They look like they should itch like crazy. They almost look like someone got bitten with like 4,000 bug bites, Um, but they don't itch and they don't affect the body, and the kids usually have had some sort of viral infection recently. Um, this is an up-close picture. Um, you may have seen this picture before. Uh, so this is an up-close picture of Giannati Crosti. They look like you could get fluid out of them. Um, FYI, you can't. Uh, so if you keep stabbing them, trying to like culture the fluid that gets out of them, people just don't like you because they start bleeding. Um, so Giannati Crosti. Why am I showing you Genati Crosti? This is another thing that I think saw us for a really long time, and I did not know that it existed. And once someone pointed it out to me, I was like, oh my gosh, I see that literally all the time. Um, and this is the child who starts with molluscum. You freeze a couple of molluscum, or you do some canthrone, or they're naturally going away on their own, and the parents call you to tell you the child has a 1,000 more molluscum. And what that is, is they're getting a Giannotti crusty reaction to their molluscum. They have all these little bumps, which look just like a stack of molluscum. I think it's very um, reasonable to consider that. But Giannotti is one of the ways that your body kind of responds when it's trying to get rid of molluscum, because it creates a huge amount of inflammation. And again, this is one of those things where you're like, sweet, I'm so glad this happened, because your molluscum's all going to go away at this point. And then um, everyone can celebrate. The child's going to look a little terrible for a few weeks. But after that, they'll be fine. Um, so what's new in pediatric dermatology? There is certainly some data for strep being associated with psoriasis, peanuts and C-sections in terms of allergic, um, uh, trying to avoid people with food allergies. Uh, and then there are some new medications as well as some safety for old medications. Kids get rashes on their butts, and it's nice to be able to figure out the genetics of some of the uh, diseases that are out there. So thank you. Thank you. Cool. It's ARS time. I'm so excited for you guys because you started with mostly the right answers and if I actually made you get the wrong answers, it's going to be so disappointing. Okay. Oh my gosh, that's a miracle. It's an educational miracle. Not only did everyone get the right answer, but no one hit the wrong button. Truly, actually amazing. Cool. <laughs> I actually tell the medical students all this, this all the time. I'm like, you're in a derm. sorry, I'll just click the button. You're in a dermatology- Now I'll stop talking. so fun! Yeah, that's a reciculated port wine stain. Um, I think educationally, it's really bizarre that um, this isn't normally done. But basically, I tell the medical students, I'm like, I'm going to present you a bunch of data. I'm going to tell you what the answer is, because that's like the information I want you to know. And then I'm going to ask you it. And then you're going to tell me it. And it's going to be amazing. And I'm going to tell you all the right answers on the test. And people are always like, that's so weird. am like, no, it's learning. That's normal. It's not cheating. You're helping humans. All right, what's the most common feature of a melanoma in a child under 10? Like like Yay, so cool. All right, um, and which of the following is a cause of genotic cross type represents to be? How many people think they've seen this? I, I promise you'll start seeing it more. All right, so cool. You guys did an amazing job. Well done. And that's the end. Uh, cool. <laughs> it says on here no, results will not be displayed. That's good. Sorry. I'll stop talking. You know they charge me if you give me ones. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? What was that movie where they implanted a microphone in the guy's mouth and then they woke him up and they were like, Jim, it's God. And he was like, God? Sounds just like that guy's voice. (laughs) Do you remember that movie? They made a huge popcorn house. It was in the 80s. What was it? Real genius. Yes, Val Kilmer. All right, sorry, I'll start answering questions. Uh, What percentage of atopic dermatitis is actually related to food allergy? That's an extremely awesome question. Um, I run an allergy derm clinic with one of the allergists, so I sit there and watch them answer this question all the time. If you have severe atopic dermatitis, the allergists guess that somewhere around 20% of your disease may be associated with some uh, some food allergy. The way I think that might happen is it doesn't happen that I think that you eat food and it causes a rash in most patients. But it's possible to eat food, get like a hive type response, scratch a bunch, and then the scratching actually brings out the eczema. So I think what we all kind of um, uh, learn in in derm school is that basically most atopic dermatitis is not from food allergies, and that is still certainly true. There are occasionally kids who have like milk protein allergy where they truly get a rash, um, or kids who just get really itchy when they eat the foods that they're allergic to, and then when they scratch, they bring their eczema out. Um, is CMTC blanching? Is I'm assuming reticular port wine stain is so um, no and yes CMTC you can partially blanch out but it's pretty purple. I'll tell you that in the world of commonness reticular port wine stains are much more common than CMTC is. Um, in order for something to be CMTC, it has to look really perfectly livido. Uh, was the scaly rash in the zinc patient photographed earlier in your talk on atopic on acrodermatitis enteropathica? So, I'm not sure the question. The patient with acrodermatitis enteropathica who um, was uh, protein deficient was also zinc deficient, if that answers that question. If not, um, just come up and ask me and I'll help. Um, capillary malformation, what percentage is considered large and is a candidate for genetic testing? Basically, if you have a child who has a port wine stain, Um, that is over a very large geographic area or especially two areas. So like if you have one arm in the belly or a leg in the belly, um, a lot of them still will be isolated. But you just want to make sure that you're kind of putting on your um, thinking hat and looking at do they have any overgrowth of their head? Do they have any overgrowth of a hand or a foot or a toe? Are they growing and developing normally? If they are growing and developing perfectly normally and there's no difference in terms of the length length or, or girth, it's very reasonable just to follow them clinically. But if you see anything that's different, then referring them to genetics is very reasonable. You actually have to be in a place where they can do biopsies and send for overgrowth. Um, But if you have uh, um, a pediatric dermatologist near you, they certainly would be happy to see them. Um, with CMTC, can there be extra findings such as limb asymmetry? Yes. It, with CMTC, though, it's usually undergrowth. So the actual CMTC in some way makes the leg often look, quote-unquote, pseudo-athletic, where it's actually bound down. It'll almost look like the leg has morphia, um, and that can certainly happen, but uh, is um, uh, not usually in other parts of the body. The port wine stains can be in kind of on an arm or a leg, and you can have overgrowth anywhere. It doesn't have to be where the port wine stains are. Do you recommend excising smaller nevus sebaceous to prevent the risk of BCC? Um, I basically give people all the data. I actually love doing this with parents. I tell them the risk of basal cell carcinoma over your your child's lifetime is something in the couple percent range. So let's call it two or five. Um, And therefore, and if you grow a basal cell, they're not particularly dangerous as long as you catch them and you cut them out. So because it it's, has a small chance of growing a skin cancer and because when you go through puberty it may start leaking oil and having other growths in it, if you as a parent want to gr- cut it out, that's totally fine. But on the other hand, because the risk of skin cancer is very small and that skin cancer itself is not a melanoma, it's very reasonable to follow it and if you want to follow it, that's totally fine also. The one thing the surgeons want us to tell people, which is um, very reasonable, is that the earlier they do it, the easier it is for them. If you've tried to move around the scalp of like a 20 year old, that's actually pretty tough. Um, In a six or eight month old, they have a lot more skin over top of their scalp that's kind of malleable. So the surgeons like to do it early. So if you have a family who knows that they're gonna get it done, it's probably more Uh, reasonable to do it a little earlier. I like to wait until kids are three because that's maybe when the risk of general anesthesia is a little bit lower, Um, but uh, not unreasonable to kind of do it younger than that if the parents really want to. Um, is there a recommended treatment for port wine stains we laser them as soon as possible um, so if, if someone has a port wine stains like a little one on the arm we'll leave it alone we'll give the parents the option if they want to laser it, they can but on the face or on the neck or in a place that's cosmetically sensitive um, the sooner you laser them the better for multiple different reasons A, um, they have smaller body surface area. B, they're easier to hold still. Um, And C, it's more effective. So if you laser a child under the age of a couple of years of age, the um, uh, pulsed eye laser works a lot better. I would not do that in your practice unless you're really used to covering children's eyes. Um, So pulse dye laser can cause blindness if you shine it in their eyes. In a 30-year-old, you're like, hey, stay still. And they're like, "Okay." Um, In a six-month-old or um, an 18-month-old, they will kick you and scream and be moving all around. And it's not safe unless you have nursing um, support that's really, really good at holding. Um, But yeah, we try to laser as soon as possible. I I usually don't laser kids under two months of age just because you're bringing them back and forth to the hospital where they can get infections and stuff. Um, But uh, after two months, we typically start. uh, for enlarged port wine stains, what type of genetic testing would you recommend? So, what we do, um, and I didn't make, mean to make this like the entire talk, but um, Port wine stains uh, that are associated with overgrowth syndromes have only been recognized in the last couple of years. And what we do is we actually do a biopsy of a port wine stain. um, And you can either send it to WashU, where they will do a panel of about uh, a few hundred oncogenes, um, which are most of the genes that are in the pathway of overgrowth. um, Or Penn actually has a similar panel, but we only test for about 10 things. It does pick out the most common things. uh, So Clove syndrome, uh, Proteus syndrome, Uh, RASA-1 mutations, et cetera. Um, And it's an uncommon thing to do, but um, you have to tell the genetic lab you're doing it before you send it, because it often has to be sent on special media. Um, But we probably biopsy 10 kids a year and try to figure out what their genetics are so that we can predict what's gonna happen with their growth over the kind of five or 10 years um, uh, later. Uh, Does wiping toilet seat with water after Clark's wipe prevent toilet seat dermatitis? Probably, but no one's really that good at it. So what I tell people to do is go back to the old days where they sprayed or did whatever um, and basically rinse it off with a ton of water. Um, the problem with having the wipes sit there right next to the toilet, it's way too easy to just randomly wipe over and over um, without thinking about whether you're rinsing it off. Um, is up coming for children anytime soon? Uh, they are in the process, I don't, don't wanna speak for the company, but they're in the process of um, uh, opening the trials for 12 to 18 and I believe six to 12 also. Um, and 12 to 18 is enrolling in some places across the country. We're about to be one of those places. Um, so I think over the next year or two, we hopefully will have FDA approval in children, uh, which would be amazing. Uh, Dosing and lab monitoring for um, um, children with methotrexate, uh, we generally use a half a milligram per kilogram once a week. And if you think about kids, let's say you have a 40-kilogram, you know, 7- or 8-year-old, uh, they are going to get to the adult dose very quickly. I generally don't go over 20 or 25 milligrams in a week in a child. Um, because children aren't drinking and they're usually not pregnant, uh, we often will check labs at the baseline. We will then check about a month or two to four weeks into the methotrexate, and then we'll actually check every three week, every three months after that. Um, so we don't, I personally don't do the whole ramp up dosing. Uh, Because checking blood work on children over and over and over, like is recommended in some of the textbooks, is really hard on them um, and will often push them away from the medication. Uh, This is fun. I haven't talked this much in a row in a really long time. I'm going to pass out. Have you heard of frankincense oil for molluscum? You could have inserted any word actually in there where frankincense oil is, and I would have said yes. Um, So you can use anything on molluscum. All you have to do is make it a little bit mad. There are people who take scotch tape and just like tap on it a bunch of times just to piss off the top of the skin. Um, There are people who will flick them with like a little needle or a little forceps. Um, There are people who put KOH, as uh, Dr. Rosen was talking about. I have personally not put frankincense oil on molluscum because that sounds expensive. Um, but uh, do be careful with apple cider vinegar. I've seen people get horrendous blistering burns from apple cider vinegar, so if they are doing that, do the tiniest amount and tell them to do it on one or two first. If you have darker skin patients, they can get really, really bad pigmentation. Um, the data for cymetidine and warts and molluscum is if you have atopic dermatitis and you have bad molluscum, cymetidine helps maybe 20% of the people. That's based on a very small sample size and is not proven. I use it as a last case resort. Do you have a max number of narrowband UVB patients? And 500 is a huge number. Um, I don't like going over 100. Uh, So if I have a child who has a disease who needs more than 100 treatments of narrowband UVB, so let's say they have psoriasis, I just have the conversation with parents where you're saying, yeah, your child's 12 and we're probably going to get them better over the next one to two years, but they have like 94 more years or 84 more years to go. Um, And so we probably need to transition to something that's a little bit more reasonable as a long-term maintenance plan than giving them many, 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 many light therapies. Um, I do have some children who have gotten into like 150 treatments for vitiligo, um, but I really try not to go much higher than that. What's the youngest person you give an isotretinoin do? Um, one day old. Um, so uh, I don't like doing that, but if children have um, certain forms of ichthyosis or a harlequin uh, um, fetus, you actually uh, have to give it to them because it's life-threatening. To answer the question probably the way it was meant to be, at, meant to what the person meant by the question, for acne, the, um, uh, the earliest that I've given Accutane is probably nine, maybe eight. Um, and I do have the conversation with them and tell them it is possible at this age to have you close your growth plates. So if you give Accutane at too high of a dose or for too long of a period of time in someone who's under 12, 13, 14 years old, it is possible to have them close their growth plates Um, In talking to Jim Layden who's one of the people who um, did a lot of the original trials uh, He thinks that really only happens at higher doses and for longer periods of time But it's very reasonable to mention it to people Um, I know um, some other people have had cases of children who feel like they did not get nearly as tall as they should have um, And they had taken Accutane. So I think anecdotally that may happen to some children, but it's very rare Cool, I'm gonna breathe um, thank you. If anyone has any other questions, it's this thing's beeping at me, and I think you guys have to eat lunch. I'm happy to answer them on the side. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.